Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. In celebration of the 200th anniversary of the birth of John Ruskin, 1819 to 1900, the most influential art critic of the Victorian era, the gallery presents the American Pre-Raphaelites, Radical Realists, an exhibition of some 90 artworks created by American artists who were profoundly influenced by Ruskin's call for a revolutionary change in the practice of art. A group of artists, architects, scientists, critics, and collectors sympathetic to Ruskin's ideas formed the Association for the Advancement of Truth in Art, which sought reform not only in artistic practices, but also in the broader political arena. In a paired lecture delivered at the National Gallery of Art on June 16, 2019, Sophie Linford and Diane Wagoner discussed further what Linford has called the American Pre-Raphaelites' comprehensive, multi-pronged agenda. By looking beyond painting to the group's ideas about architecture and photography, Linford and Wagoner more fully illustrated the philosophy of the American Pre-Raphaelites, whose search for truth had both pictorial and moral stakes. Good afternoon, I'm Diane Wagoner, curator of 19th century photographs here at the National Gallery of Art, and I want to welcome you to this joint presentation, American Pre-Raphaelitism Through the Lens and on the Canvas, organized in conjunction with the exhibition, The American Pre-Raphaelites Radical Realists, which is currently on view on the ground floor of the West Building through July 21st. So I will be delivering the first half of this talk, that's through the lens part, on American Pre-Raphaelitism and photography, and I will then introduce my fellow presenter afterwards, Sophie Linford, who will take over for the second half on the canvas focusing on American Pre-Raphaelite landscape painting. And I do want to add a quick thank you to Linda Ferber and Nancy Anderson, the curators of the exhibition, who I know are here in the audience there, um, on behalf of myself and Sophie, uh, for first inviting both of us to contribute to the catalog of the exhibition and then inviting us to give this joint lecture today. So this is a vibrant watercolor by John Ruskin, The Fragment of the Alps, which he called Study of a Block of Nice, which you can see here in the exhibition. And in it, he intricately renders contours of stone in delicate grays and vivid coppers foregrounded against the deep emerald of trees and cobalt blue of sky, which he conveyed by more broadly applied wash. In 1863, an author wrote in the art journal, The New Path, that Ruskin's watercolor was the pinnacle of, quote, direct copying of nature. The journal was published by the artist who had just formed the Association for the Advancement of Truth in Art, the group that forms the subject of the current exhibition, who came to be called the American Pre-Raphaelites. Ruskin's work was an exemplar to these American artists, the embodiment of his ideals advocating that artists observe nature closely and transcribe it faithfully. Owned from 1858 by Bostonian Charles Eliot Norton, a prominent man of letters and later Harvard art historian, the watercolor had been displayed in the Exhibition of English Art that toured New York, Boston, and Philadelphia in 1857 and 1858, which afforded many American artists the opportunity to see Ruskin's work in person. The author of the article in The New Path continued on to describe, quote, the great boulder is, as it were, photographed in color. Every hue of its wonderfully varied colors, every irregular split and crack and broken surface, every substance inlaid in its mass, like a precious stone in Florentine mosaic, every incrustation is given with faultless mirror-like accuracy. The article was signed J.S who was recently identified as William James Stillman. And I must acknowledge my fellow presenter, Sophie Linford here for making that discovery, excuse me, for making that discovery. So I want all credit to go to her for that. Stillman was one of the key figures in American art in the mid 19th century, who will be the primary subject of my talk today. He was a prominent writer pivotal to bringing Ruskin's ideas to America. And he was a seminal artist working in both landscape painting and photography. In his description of Ruskin's watercolor, he brings together two critical strands that exerted an enormous influence on American art practice. On the one hand, Ruskin's ideas on the importance of the close observation of nature, and on the other, the effect that the invention of photography had on artists. 
As exemplified by his own watercolor, Ruskin famously exhorted artists to go to nature, quote, rejecting nothing, selecting nothing, and scorning nothing, believing all things to be right and good, and rejoicing always in the truth. His ideas linking the faithful observation of nature with a higher religious and moral dimension electrified painters first in Britain and then America. They, they led to a seminal shift in artistic practice and style toward a precise realism in the mid-19th century. In Britain, this took the form of the radical rebellion of pre-Raphaelitism. And here I'm showing you two paintings made by British pre-Raphaelites, Ford Maddox Brown's An English Autumn Afternoon and William Holman Hunt's The Light of the World, both from the early 1850s, and both of which toured America in the same exhibition of English art as Ruskin's watercolor in the late 1850s. Formed in 1848, the British Pre-Raphaelites were a group of young artists that came together to defy the artistic conventions of the day, galvanizing the art world with their paintings. Deriving their name from the conviction that only art made before the time of the Italian Renaissance painter Raphael was honest and true, they called themselves the pre-Raphaelites. Eschewing the loose brushwork, idealized form, and gradation of light and dark characteristic of the art practice of the time, the pre-Raphaelites instead painted the details of landscape directly from nature, closely observing and firmly delineating its outlines, and flooded their canvases with brilliant, vivid, all-over color. Yet Stillman's description of Ruskin's study as photographed in color also highlighted another vital influence on this aesthetic shift in handling, photography the invention of which was announced to the world in 1839. As the painter Paul Delaroche famously declared upon learning of the miraculous ability of photography to record the world without the intervention of the human hand, from today, painting is dead. But of course, painting was not dead, but would, however, be radically altered by the existence of photography. And as you can see in Brown and Hunt's paintings, photography inevitably influenced the practice of the British pre-Raphaelites as it sharpened artistic vision and handling, even though the artists seldom acknowledged the new medium's influence. Photography's very existence posed an inherent challenge to art making, and American artists, too, responded to it. Now, in America, the dominant process in use during the first decade and a half of photography's existence was the daguerreotype. And I show you two examples here. This is Luther Holman Hale's portrait of three women and a baby uh, by a boss. He was a Boston daguerreotypist. And Platt Babbitt's view of Niagara Falls. The daguerreotype, made on a silver-coated copper plate, was praised for its crystalline clarity and ability to capture the minutiae of faces of nature and of architecture in a way that the hand of the artist could not. And by the time of the formation of the Association for the Advancement of Truth in Art in 1863, when the American pre-Raphaelite movement coalesced, the daguerreotype had been superseded by paper and glass processes. This is an example of an albumen print by John Moran from that same year, 1863, made from a wet collodion glass negative, which combined precise exactitude and a rich range of tonal gradations. Through the 1850s and into the 1860s, photography became a prominent part of life. A thriving community of photographers in both large cities and small towns in America became firmly established. And photography would thus prove to exert an influence on American artists' ways of seeing and their attempt to find a fresh visual language. Photography endowed the role of description and detail with a new importance, contributing to the rise of realism as an aesthetic mode. The peculiarities of photographic vision, which flattened forms and abruptly cropped the visual field, began to make their way into painting, serving as a marker of fidelity to observation and propelling artists like the young American pre-Raphaelites toward a microcosmic focus on the myriad details of nature, as you see in particular with this Aaron Draper Shattuck that is on view in the exhibition. Indeed, in Stillman's description of Ruskin's watercolor, he invoked photography as a guarantor of realism. And to show more clearly this shift toward American pre-Raphaelite or realist practice, I'm showing you here Thomas Cole's A View of the Mountain Pass called The Notch of the White Mountains, painted in 1839, the very year of photography's introduction to the world. Cole's painting implements the conventions of the picturesque, in which the view is framed at the sides by the tree stumps and the eye is drawn back into the depth of the painting by a pathway such as the road seen here. 
And while the details of the plants and stumps in the foreground and the autumnal trees covering the cliffs on either side of the notch are rendered legibly, they nevertheless have a softness of outline, a style that would generally shift among painters in mid-century in favor of precise representation of detail after the advent of photography, such that by the 1850s and early 1860s, as photography established a strong foothold in American life, American artists produced canvases such as this work by Asher B. Durand, himself a leading proponent of Ruskin's call to record nature faithfully alongside Stillman, and William Trust Richards, whose painting October is on view in the exhibition, an artist associated with American pre-Raphaelitism. Their work was the most dramatically informed by the simultaneous emergence of both Ruskin's call for truth to nature and the acknowledged capacity of photography to record the observable world. But it was William James Stillman who was really the key conduit in America for this shift as American artists adopted Ruskinian tenets. And more than any other American artist of the time, Stillman's work made manifest the convergence of these new visual approaches, approaches between photography and painting. He was slightly older than the American pre-Raphaelites and was acknowledged explicitly by them as an important predecessor. Stillman led a very remarkable, varied life. And I'm showing you here, this is his portrait that he published many years later um, with his autobiography. After he graduated from college in 1848, the same year when the British pre-Raphaelites first appeared on the scene, he settled in New York, a young man full of aspirations and seeking to find his way as an artist. He had read Ruskin's first volume of Modern Painters, published in America in 1847, and he later recalled he had, quote, absorbed the views of Ruskin in large drafts. The art-loving public was full of Ruskinian enthusiasm, and what strength I had shown was in that vein. He traveled to London for the first time in 1850 and a second time in 1853, where he met Ruskin and other British artists. He viewed the works of Turner, such as Turner's The Fighting Temeraire, and had his first sight of paintings by Dante Gabriel Rossetti and John Everett Millay, two of the most prominent British pre-Raphaelites. And he particularly saw this one, The Prescribed Royalist, as he mentions it much later in his autobiography. And he noted that the Millay, quote, impressed me very strongly, in fact, it determined me in the manner in which I should follow art on my return home. Back in America, he spent the next several years, quote, given to hard and monotonous painting from nature while the weather permitted. He exhibited many large studies of nature, was elected to the National Academy of Design, and began to be called the American Pre-Raphaelite, and he was the first American to receive that moniker. Unfortunately, very few of Stillman's paintings survive. And one of the few that is extant is his study on Upper Saranac Lake, which you can see on view in the exhibition. Stillman suffered from bouts of illness and depression, and he sought out the solace of nature, spending time in the White Mountains in New Hampshire and the Adirondacks, places that became the chief subjects of his landscape paintings. During these sojourns, he discovered a profound love for solitude and nature infused with a strong sense of spirituality, which is evident in his painting. It was completed in 1854 after his first trip to the Adirondacks. Showing a view of the lake through trees, Stillman lavished his attention on the foreground, endeavoring to precisely capture not only the modeled tones and textures of the tree trunks and the rocks, soil and plant cover of the forest floor, but also the complex play of shade and sunlight over these forms. Though he adopted a darker palette, more akin to the paintings of Asher B. Durand and other American artists who had studied in Dusseldorf than to the brilliant luminosity of British pre-Raphaelite painting that he had seen in London, Stillman nevertheless demonstrated his Ruskinian bona fides by his intensely faithful adherence to his subject. And around the same time, he delivered a very bold statement on the way that photography newly tested painters. He wrote, Studies from nature that would once have been considered satisfactory when placed by the side of a photograph become poor things and their artist must improve or be neglected. Photographs are a standard, infallible so far as they go, and artists must either give something which the daguerreotype cannot attain or do something which can approach it in fidelity. This effect cannot be otherwise than beneficial since on the perfect observance of truth 
all other qualities of art are based. And in truth, it would seem that as our powers of observation become microscopic, they become telescopic also, i.e., the more minutely we see, the more we see. Stillman's remark highlighting this sharpening of vision that photography made essential was published in The Cran, the journal he co-founded in 1855 with Asherby Duran's son, John. The Cran was a precursor to the new path and was instrumental in bringing Ruskin's writings and ideas to an American audience. An ambitious publication for two young men to undertake, the journal quickly earned praise and the editors secured writings from prominent literati, such as poet, essayist, and editor James Russell Lowell and William Cullen Bryant, and also published Ruskin himself. Stillman left the editorship of the Cran in 1856, citing mental and physical exhaustion, but his important contribution as editor left his mark on the American art world, laying the groundwork for the ardent followers of Ruskin who would eventually form the Association for the Advancement of Truth in Art some years later in 1863. Furthermore, Stillman, more than any other painting, painter working at the time, paved the way for a distinctly American branch of pre-Raphaelitism by bringing together both Ruskinian philosophy and American transcendentalism. Stillman intensely admired James Russell Lowell, with whom he became acquainted in the early 1850s. Lowell introduced him to Charles Eliot Norton, the later owner of Ruskin's watercolor, who became a close friend and financial supporter, and to others in his circle of Boston intellectuals that included philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson and Louis Agassiz, the Harvard naturalist. Stillman wrote many letters to Norton in which he ruminates expansively on the divine presence he felt in nature. Later, he wrote, quote, it has been my habit for many years at all times when I found myself broken down by fatigue to resort to the wilderness for recuperation, and I have lured wiser men and better workers to follow me and find renewal. In 1858, four years after he painted upper stu the study in Upper Saranac Lake, Stillman lured some of these wiser men to go on an extraordinary camping expedition. He served as guide to James Russell Lowell, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and Louis Agassiz, and others in 1858 in the Adirondacks in a gathering they dubbed the Philosopher's Camp. And along with Stillman's Adirondack painting, the other major painting from his career that survives is this study of the historic gathering of these men who critically shaped the way that America valued the natural environment. Morning at Camp Maple, Adirondack Woods, is set in the forest clearing where the men built shelter. Stillman divided the participants into two groups. So on the left there you see Agassiz and other men named Estes Howe, Dr. Jeffries Wyman, and John Holmes, and they're um, examining a fish on a tree stump. And on, among the group on the right is Lowell himself, sorry, Lowell, Stillman himself, Ebenezer Rockwood Hoare, Amos Binney, and Horatio Woodman, and they are engaging in a shooting practice. And the figure in the very center there is Emerson himself, occupying the center, standing alone and observing. So not only was Stillman guiding these men's experience of nature by serving as their guide in the, in the Adirond Adirondacks, he also in his painting represented their physical and mental exertions as they studied and lived immersed in the forest. Sunlight streams in through the trees to bathe them with bright light, conjuring a sense of their communion with nature. After the rest of the party departed for Boston, Stillman stayed on by himself, rapturously noting that he rode, hunted, fished, and was exploring new recesses of that marvelous forest which buries me deeper each time I enter it. Critically, Stillman was also the first to bring these philosophical philosophical threads to the practice of photography. The following year, in 1859, he returned to the Adirondacks, camping again with a smaller group than the previous year. And after the other men left, he remained again by himself, as he did the year before, in hopes of improving his fatigue and low spirits. This was always a constant theme with, uh, with Stillman. He wrote to Charles Eliot Norton that, quote, I have not done much on my picture, but I have chopped wood, Road, taken photographs about the camp in the intervals of the showers, sketched some and hunted more, closing the letter by noting, quote, I have made some very nice little photographs of forest subjects. Stillman assembled these forest subjects as a portfolio, which he titled 
Photographic Studies by W.J. Stillman, Part 1, The Forest, Adirondack Woods. Part 2 would never materialize. These photographs, which were albumin prints made from collodion glass negatives, were unprecedented within American photography, with Stillman employing Ruskinian art theory and practice in his choice of subject and compositions. Few copies of the portfolio survive, and each contains a slightly different number of photographs, so it is not certain how many were in the original, but 15 images are extant, of which four are in, on view in the exhibition. And unlike the painting, Morning at Camp Maple, in which Stillman had shown the party of wilderness seekers ensconced in their camp with the material necessities of tent and lean-to shelter combined with the figures as evidence of their communal gathering, humans are absent from Stillman's forest photographs. Only two allude to a human presence, as in the one you see here, which shows a camp, the camp shelter and a lean-to. In his photographs, Stillman's strategies of composition included several vignetted scenes in which the round shape of the photographic image evokes both the circular camera lens and the human eye. In one, the one you see here on the left, is a snow, it's a snow scene showing how late into the year Stillman remained in the Adirondacks. And here the pictorial viewpoint corresponds to the camera's height on a tripod pointed straight into the forest as if a keyhole onto an untouched world. And in another vignetted one, the one that you see here on the right, a glimpse of forest floor packs the foreground, while the remainder of the pictorial plane is occupied by the slope of a rock covered in mosses or lichen, thin branches and sparse leaves, and the diagonal line of a felled log crossing on the left. In others, without the vignetted format, Stillman fills the frame from forest floor, moving up through trees to the sunlight shining through in the distance, as in the example on the left. And in another, the one on the right, it offers an off-kilter perspective, capturing a vertical slope with a tree growing out of it, so that we can really only orient ourselves by the trees that we see in the background at the left. Each of these photographs invokes the sense of microscopic seeing Stillman had described earlier in the crayon, and the destabilizing, dizzying effect imparts that sense of full immersion into the woods, just as Stillman described experiencing it in his letters to Norton. These close-up views echoed Stillman's own painting, Saranac Lake, as well as those by Durand, but they are even more radical than their painted counterparts. Unlike these paintings, there's no far vista in his photographs. Instead, nature crowds around and encroaches with only glimpses of light available, as Richards and other American pre-Raphaelites would paint into the next decade. After 1860, Stillman never resided permanently in the United States when he sailed for London and he reconnected with Ruskin and the British art community, but he did come back to the United States periodically. Eventually, I should add, he gave up painting after suffering under Ruskin's criticism, and he became a diplomat and a journalist, um, though he did continue to make photographs. And he led a very, very fascinating life, but that's really a story for another day. He compiled albums with more landscape photographs, including these pictures that he made in the White Mountains on a subsequent trip back to America, which exhibit the same hallmarks as his forest pictures. Stillman's photographs of the Adirondacks and the White Mountains suggest that the artist was searching for a way to express his own spirituality as well as the transcendentalism of Emerson, fostered by their time spent together in the woods at the Philosopher's Camp in 1858. He recalled later in his autobiography, Emerson and I had many hours alone on the lake and in the wood. He seemed to be a living question, perpetually interrogating his impression of all that there was to be seen. The rest of us were always at the surface of things. Even the naturalists were only engaged with their anatomy. But Emerson in the forest, or looking at the sunset from the lake, seemed to be looking through the phenomena, studying them by their reflections on an inner speculum. While Stillman evoked Emerson's powers of observation in Morning at Camp Maple, again placing Emerson at the center of the composition as the, as the linchpin observing everybody else, in his photographs, Stillman searches for that Emersonian ability to communicate beyond the surface of things, incorporating glimpses of light to make his photographs of nature serve as emblems of eminence. 
And I want to just reiterate just how truly unique these photographs were at the time that Stillman made them in 1859. There were no other photographers making these sorts of photographs with this kind of ambition in the late 1850s imbued with these Ruskinian and Emersonian ideals. Despite the underpinnings of Emersonian spirituality, however, it was really the Ruskinian characteristics of Stillman's photographs that stood out to his contemporaries. They were primarily interpreted, as were his paintings, as models of Ruskinian realism. The forest portfolio received one mention in the press in the Atlantic Monthly, then under the editorship of Stillman's friend, James Russell Lowell, who had been part of the Philosopher's Camp excursion. He emphasized the pre-Raphaelite qualities of the photographs, echoing Stillman's own comments about photography allowing us to see microscopically, writing, quote, one may study these pictures till he becomes as familiar as a squirrel with fern and tree bark and moose wood and lichen, till he knows every trunk and twig and leaf as intimately as a sunbeam. Stillman thus contributed to the groundwork for the realist and observational turn in American art in the middle decades of the century that you see in the work of the American pre-Raphaelite artists featured in the exhibition. I will leave you by giving Stillman the very last word, as he very proudly stated in his autobiography, quote, I influenced some of my contemporaries and gave a jog to the landscape painting of the day. Thank you. <laughs> Um, it's now my pleasure to introduce Sophie Linford, who will continue the presentation today. Sophie just received her PhD in the history of art last month from Yale University. So congratulations, Sophie. That's a great accomplishment. <laughs> and she completed her dissertation on the American Pre-Raphaelites. She has worked in the curatorial departments of the New York Historical Society, the Yale Center for British Art, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art and she was co-curator of the 2018 exhibition, Picturesque and Sublime, Thomas Cole's Transatlantic Inheritance at the Thomas Cole National Historic Site, and she was co-author of the accompanying publication. This September, Sophie will begin a position as Theodore Rousseau Curatorial Fellow at the Harvard Art Museums in the Division of American and European Art. She's a specialist in pre-Raphaelitism on both sides of the Atlantic, um, and she contributed an essay to the exhibition catalog of the American Pre-Raphaelites Radical Realists on the group's civil war output and the movement's passionate commitment to abolition. And her talk today will be drawn from this research. So please join me in welcoming Sophie. Okay, my understanding is this, ha ha ha. <laughs> Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, Diane, for getting us started in, in the 1850s. And I'm going to continue where she left off. And I, I don't want to interrupt the flow from Diane's presentation, but I do want to give a few of my own thank yous. Um, so many thanks to Allie, Sarah, and Terrence for organizing today's program, and to Nancy Anderson for supporting this project from its earliest stages. Um, but in particular, I want to express my sincere thanks, I can't see her, but to the curator of this exhibition, Linda Ferber, who's here today, and she's my first boss and mentor, and I'm so grateful to her for enthusiastically encouraging my study of this group of artists, and I'm indebted to Linda for her own pioneering scholarship on this material. Her support has been gracious and formative, and I'm so pleased that I've been able to share my research with her and, and now with all of you today. So. Thank you, Linda. Um, before beginning, I should mention that all of the American Pre-Raphaelite works that I'm going to show in this presentation are upstairs in the exhibition, which I hope you've seen or will see after the talk today. So without further ado, I will begin in 1864 as the American Civil War raged. The following pronouncement appeared in a New York art journal. Art in America has been pursued on wrong principles. Never to this day has an American painted a line that could be construed into a reproach to American slavery. And yet, what a work of art might have been accomplished if there had been a man with a warm heart and a clear brain and a skillful pencil to seize the golden opportunity. 
the American Pre-Raphaelites published these words in their journal, The New Path. Unprecedented as a collective political statement by a group of American artists, this editorial is the most explicit assertion of social and political critique made by the American Pre-Raphaelites. This piece indicts the nation's painting, sculpture, and architecture, which the group viewed as uniformly debased, as having fostered a culture, quote, infected by the sin of slavery and moral cowardice. During the years of their collaborative association, American Pre-Raphaelite painters and architects produced work that embodied principles of social equity, civil conduct, and beauty, and that they believed could herald lasting social and political reform. So in 1863, the year before, the American Pre-Raphaelites had founded the Association for the Advancement of Truth and Art, which Diane mentioned. And when they founded that organization, they authored articles of organization, they established mechanisms of governance, a publishing arm, and a platform that sought to influence painting, sculpture, and architecture, as well as educate the taste of the American public. Though William Stillman never joined the association, his experiments, as we just saw in painting and photography the previous decade, laid the groundwork from which a robust pre-Raphaelite movement could flourish in America in the 1860s. The American Pre-Raphaelites are primarily remembered as rejecting the era's established conventions in academic landscape painting, particularly denouncing the work of mainstream American landscape painters who would later be labeled the Hudson River School. So these guys. The association launched salvos against such well-known artists as Thomas Cole, Asher Durand, and Frederick Church, whose idealized representations of nature the group repudiated as false and grandiose. The American Pre-Raphaelite painters, by contrast, opted to execute mimetically precise landscapes, nature studies, and still lifes of modest dimensions. They counted Stillman among the best examples to follow, deeming him, quote, the one man in America who understood and believed in the new art. Because American pre-Raphaelite paintings are not overtly occupied with images of slavery, manumission, or war, and they appear almost insistently apolitical, it can be difficult to isolate political messages within their work. So in my talk today, I'll argue that the American pre-Raphaelite painter's protest was expressed through their rejection of idealized landscape representation that they believe disguised the moral corruption at the heart of their nation's democratic experiment. The paintings on the top register of this slide, all on view in the current exhibition, were executed by American pre-Raphaelite painters. Those below are works by the American Pre-Raphaelites' predecessors and contemporaries, Cole, Durand, and Church, and embody the principles of idealized landscape composition that the American Pre-Raphaelites rejected. This juxtaposition allows us to identify formal decisions made by the American Pre-Raphaelites to differentiate their output from what they believed were the visually and thematically homogenous productions of mainstream landscape painters. So we see with Cole Durand and Church, these artists adhered to conventions of the Claudian picturesque, with repoussoir framing trees that guide the viewer's eye to tranquil bodies of water in the middle ground, behind which lie mountains bathed in warm sunlight. We'll see this again and again in American paintings of this period. But the American pre-Raphaelites avoided such preconceived formulas, instead devoting themselves to painting from direct observation. The video, visual idiosyncrasies that the, uh, the American, of, the, of the American pre-Raphaelite style can be attributed to their vibrant color palettes, the frequent insertion of disproportionately large foreground objects, their fanatical precision of brushwork, and the absence of an atmospheric haze on the horizon, all of which led to the pre-Raphaelite's hallmark effect of flatness. The American pre-Raphaelites also abstained from the thematics associated with the so-called Hudson River School. Those painters found it culturally resonant and commercially rewarding to present America as a new Eden. The American pre-Raphaelites, by contrast, were skeptical of artistic conventions that promoted the new world as paradise. 
they rejected landscapes not painted directly from nature, like those seen at the bottom of the screen, disparaging them as works that, quote, give to the world no facts at all. Although the association eventually assembled nearly 30 members, its core painters included Thomas Charles Farrer, Charles Herbert Moore, John William Hill, John Henry Hill, William Trost Richards, and Henry Roderick Newman. They were united by their mutual commitment to promulgating the aesthetic doctrines of the British critic John Ruskin and to extending the Pre-Raphaelite experiment onto American soil. Ruskin was the Victorian era's most prominent art critic. It was in the first volume of his five-part opus, Modern Painters, that Ruskin argued that the foremost role of the artist was to achieve truth to nature, and we'll see this slide again. Ruskin famously encouraged artists to reject nothing, select nothing, and scorn nothing when depicting the natural world. Beginning in the 1850s, Ruskin championed the British Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, a group of artists who painted out of doors after close study of botanical and geological detail. But in the United States, the terms Ruskinian and Pre-Raphaelite were often synonymous, referring to the minute transcription of natural features. In this sense, American practitioners followed key stylistic choices made by the British Pre-Raphaelites, such as William Holman Hunt, John Everett Millay, who uh, Diane showed a slide of uh, the prescribed royalist before, and Dante Gabriel Rossetti, but rejected the London artist's interest in medieval, biblical, and Shakespearean narratives and the compositions of quattrocento Italian art in favor of landscapes, nature studies, and still lifes. Founded in 1848, the British Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood revived the vibrant palettes and flattened surfaces popular in Italian art before the time of the Renaissance painter Raphael, believing these techniques and styles would herald a reformation of contemporary British art. One of the Brotherhood's strikingly modern innovations, however, and one that their American counterparts emulated, was that each object pictured in their canvases, whether it was a human figure, a lily, or a goat, had been painted, often painstakingly, from direct observation. In translating these practices across the Atlantic, the Americans embraced the realist rather than the revivalist elements of the Pre-Raphaelite project, deploying its principles to upend existing traditions of landscape painting in the United States. There is, however, no monolithic form of realism that encompasses all the styles of the American Pre-Raphaelites. Each artist, while internalizing his own reading of Ruskin and engagement with the British Pre-Raphaelites, possessed an idiosyncratic sensibility that blended American and British influences. John William Hill, for example, was the artist most committed to the still life, executing modest scenes of fruit, dead birds, and nests with eggs juxtaposed against small corners of nature. His son, John Henry Hill, turned to looser facture and more monumental natural settings after viewing firsthand the work of J.M.W. Turner. William Trost Richards became a master of the all foreground subject, a compositional choice that reflects his early attraction to the Dusseldorf School. But the American Pre-Raphaelites were united in their belief that realism was the only method of painting that was the indispensable corrective to the idealized representations and what they viewed as the, quote, aimless, lounging, trivial habits and ways of work of the Hudson River School. Calling for a revolution in realism, the American Pre-Raphaelites explained their own understanding of the term, writing that, quote, Realism is the desire and effort to see everything visible as it truly and essentially is. It is the effort to avoid affectation, academical laws, and prescribed formulas, and to work for the disciplined, natural sense of right alone. Over the course of the Civil War, the American Pre-Raphaelites refined their own contribution to their group's pro-union and abolitionist agenda. They condemned grand manor landscapes, such as those on the screen, that celebrated westward expansion as condoning, if not promoting, a militarist ethos. 
They were convinced that the new nation's moral and aesthetic arc could progress toward democratic culture and social justice only if led by artists who represented the landscape without the misguided mediation of ideal forms. At the center of the American Pre-Raphaelites reformist project was their struggle to identify an ethical style of landscape painting at the moment when the nation's very ground served as the site of separatist and bloody conflict. The urgent aesthetic and political issues at stake in American Pre-Raphaelite painting animate Charles Herbert Moore's Hudson River Above Catskill. This canvas exposes a complex relationship between the artist and the work, works of earlier and contemporary American landscape painters, particularly Thomas Cole, who is often deemed the father or founder of American landscape painting. Moore's chosen subject was painted in open defiance of established landscape conventions and pictured the bank of the Hudson in Catskill, a site that had been made famous by Cole. Moore's work can be considered a challenge to the standing of Cole and his followers. Hudson River above Catskill asserts that these northeastern locales were not the proprietary domain of a cadre of New York-based painters who had monopolized them for the preceding 40 years. In Moore's depiction of a small strip of the Hudson Riverfront, Painted in April 1865, the month the Civil War ended, he records, quote, every beautiful pebble with equal exactness, while responding to the inconsolable grief and anxieties imposed by the national conflict. Moore presents the river's rocky bank littered with anti-picturesque detritus. With the precision of a geologist, he renders fragments of rocks with such specificity that they are identifiable as the shales and carbonates that underlie the Hudson River at Catskill. Scattered bones and the remnants of an equine skull have been deposited next to a rib bone and, next to that, a red apple. A small rowboat emptied of its oars appears as if it has been recently dragged on shore. Moore's stranded boat introduces contemporary associations with abandoned vessels, often read during the period as emblems of the foundered ship of state, connoting, as David Miller has written, quote, fears for and even a loss of faith in the American corporate enterprise during and following the Civil War, end quote. The art historian Patricia Junker extends this argument to her reading of Moore's work, which she interprets as a private memorial to Lincoln assassinated that April. She asks, quote, is that haunting absence of an oarsman that we feel in Moore's painting, the dead Lincoln and the oarless boat, the ship of state, end quote. Moore's unusual assemblage privileges the pre-Raphaelite allegiance to faithful transcription over the aesthetic and moral compromises that he and his colleagues found in grandiose idealized landscapes and viewed as the price of a false compositional harmony. The profusion of botanical, biological, and geological residua, each the product of a discrete observation, conflates the generative act of the artist with the taxonomic discipline of the scientist. While endowing his work with psychological freight, selecting and painting landscapes that were permeable to political readings, Moore remained steadfast to the American Pre-Raphaelite project pursued with messianic intensity of rendering seemingly uncomposed natural settings with unwavering fidelity. Moore's colleague, John Henry Hill, viewed his wartime output as his own contribution to the North's campaign. One such work, which hangs opposite Moore's in the exhibition, is Hill's 1863 painting, A Study of Trap Rock, Buttermilk Falls. Hill wrote that it was, quote, the most elaborately literal study from nature I ever made. It was done in July and occupied me every afternoon in the month while our civil war was going on. Another detail that must be considered in reading this work is the fact that the artist sketching in the lower right corner is not a self-portrait, as has long been presumed, but rather Hill's friend and American pre-Raphaelite colleague, Thomas Farrer, the only core member of the group to fight in the war, and who, in summer 1863, was less than one year returned from the front. 
While Hill described the setting as a pleasant rocky dell, the painting has been interpreted as an allegorical treatment of the slaughter and sacrifice of war. The power of the piece resides in the tension between this pleasant dell hewn by millions of years of volcanic rifting and the immediacy of the stone outcroppings outlined in the bright air of midsummer, each block cleaved and angled, each individuated through the precision of Hill's draftsmanship. The art historian May Brawley Hill likens these, quote, broken blocks and boulders jumbled together with the trunks of dead trees like so many fallen bodies, and the sundered rock as an emblem of the several states, once strong and unified, now torn apart by civil war, end quote. In the case of a study of trap rock, Hill participates in a program of perceptual and cultural reform as set forth by John Ruskin in England, but reconstituted with a new politics in the American Northeast. Rebelling against the inherited hierarchical principles of composition, the landscapes of the American pre-Raphaelites depend on acts of discrete and quickened perception and resonate with the quality that Ruskin, invoking an Old Testament passage, described when he wrote that, quote, God is not in the earthquake nor in the fire, but in the still small voice. That still small voice finds visual articulation in Thomas Charles Farrer's view of Northampton from the dome of the hospital. This is a deferred, aha. Um, perhaps the American Pre-Raphaelite's most assertive statement of aesthetic descent. In view of Northampton, Farrer also chose to directly confront the legacy of Thomas Cole. He pictures the same landscape as does Cole in his famous painting, View from Mount Holyoke, Northampton, After a Thunderstorm, The Oxbow. But Farrer captures the Northampton Meadows from the opposite direction, from a site northwest of Cole's vantage point of Mount Holyoke. The body of water in the foreground of Farrer's work is the Mill River, and behind that snakes the Connecticut River, the curve due north of the Oxbow. Mount Holyoke, the site from which Cole painted, is seen at the right of Farrer's canvas, overlapping with the horizon line. While Cole's work shows only the early stages of cultivation of the meadowland, Farrer's, painted 30 years later, reveals the industrialization and urbanization that has since taken place, embodied in the hospital from which he paints, a community of residences, a church, and activity built up around the waterway. Though Farrer consciously determined to replicate a resonant American landscape painted by his most famous American predecessor, he decided to invert the image, to choose an idiosyncratic vantage point from which to transcribe it, and to include elements of modernity that Cole would have intentionally disavowed. Where Cole manipulated his composition, framing the geographical features of Northampton within pre-existing tropes of the picturesque and the sublime, Farrer rejected the visual hierarchies of both modes of representation and depicted the vicinity as he directly apprehended it. Further spurning the practices associated with idealized landscape productions, Farrer understood that the touristic view from the top of Mount Holyoke that Cole had chosen was not consonant with his project, and instead, Farrer chose as his vantage the dome of the State Hospital for the Insane, known locally as the Lunatic Asylum. Farrer's decision was imbued with a democratic impulse, just a few months after the war's conclusion, planning his most ambitious landscape to date, he selected a vista that he shared with the hospital's patients, many of whom, like Farrer, were former Union soldiers. More significantly, however, Farrer's egalitarian disposition also suffused his representational vision. Every element pictured in view of Northampton, both organic and man-made, is in compositional equilibrium, a precise and uninflected rendition of nature. For Farrer, no feature is more or less deserving of his and the viewer's attention. Farrer's treatment of Northampton stands in stark visual, ideological, and emotional contrast to Cole's. 
The oxbow has long been an iconic image within American landscape painting. Its hold on both the scholarly and popular imagination tied to its ability to absorb diverse interpretations. The painting's visual binaries and the schismatic intensity of its compositional structure have been read as representing the tensions between nature and civilization or balancing alternative narratives of American progress and national identity. The recent exhibition on coal at the Metropolitan Museum advanced an analysis of the Oxbow as a work that foregrounds coal's principal concerns. The urgent need to protect the untamed wilderness, a message enshrined at the left of the canvas, against the extension of agricultural and industrial cultivation visualized in Cole's depiction of the valley below. Farrer's flattened, geometricized, and veristic rendition of Northampton not only rejected the idealized, if more conflicted, terms of coal, but also disavowed Cole's successors' jingoistic narratives of American expansionism and domination. Instead of the attempt at allegorical truth found in the work of Cole and his successors, Farrer offers the truth uniquely available from a sustained act of attention both his in the presence of the motif and that asked of the viewer. By not prejudging the natural elements that are more or less worthy of representation, Farrer offers viewers a post-bellum Northampton that visually embodied values of equality that he, in solidarity with the hospital's patients, had fought to extend to all Americans. The American pre-Raphaelites shared the conviction that works of art forged by acts of devoted, even fanatical mimesis could alter both perception and consciousness in direct proportion to their truthful depiction. Denouncing their predecessors and contemporaries, the American pre-Raphaelites attributed to them the collective failure of perpetuating an idealized and thus sanitized vision of America. Those artists, argued the American pre-Raphaelites, who participated in promoting the national mythos of manifest destiny, elevated a morally compromised vision of the American narrative. Instead, the American pre-Raphaelites cultivated an acuity of vision sustained by unstinting exertions that they understood were prerequisite to truth. Defiant in their refusal to be implicated in the moral evasions of artistic precedent, the American pre-Raphaelites believed that the triangle of faith, art, and polity could only be nourished by a righteous and unyielding realism. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.